This week, I sit down with Brandon Hatton. Now, Brandon is the president and chief investment strategist for Hatton Investments, a firm that he founded. And he's also the author of a really fascinating book called Conscious Wealth. And this is a concept or a framework that he created through his own life experience, uh, assessing his own relationship with money. And he tells the story of how that evolved over time to become, at one point, it was very toxic. And he really evolved to a much healthier and um, wiser place with finance personally. And then he used some of the tools to now go on to impact other people through his practice, through his firm, and also through this amazing book. And so we, we talk a lot about it, but he breaks conscious wealth down into four specific tenets. And those are abundance, purpose, impact, and unity. And we look in this, in this conversation, we talk about things like, you know, what is abundance? And even more difficult, how much is enough? He has something called the enough equation that he shares. Um, but he also just talks a lot about his own experience and how he came to a lot of these realizations, which I think is really instructive. So we all live in a world that is, you know, where money's everywhere. So it affects our lives, no matter who we are. And he's got some great ideas about how to assess your own relationship with money to see if it's healthy, how healthy it is. And then some steps to evolve that relationship. So you get to a place where you're enjoying your life more and you're contributing at a deeper level and money is doing its highest good in your life, whatever that might be for you. So I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. I had a great time talking to him. And um, as you know, I work with a company called the Oxford Club, who, which puts out investment research for individual investors. And the core newsletter outperformed the stock market over the last 20 years by 100%. So if you're interested in learning more about that newsletter, it's been rated one of the top 10 in the country by Holbert's Financial Digest. And you can find out more at www.richlifeguy.com forward slash Oxford Club. That's www.richlifeguy.com forward slash Oxford Club. And without further ado, I bring you Brandon Hatton. All right, Brandon, thank you so much for being here. I am, uh, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, I'm I'm so excited to uh, to dive into your 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 experience, your wisdom, your story, and okay. and the wonderful book you've you've put out there. But I thought we might, in going back through and uh, doing some research for this interview, I came across a little tidbit from your background, and I wonder if you could uh, speak to it before we dive in. Which was that, as I understand it, there was a point in time where you ended up very far from Miami, in fact, in Egypt as a history teacher. Yeah. And I wonder if you could just share a little bit about how, how that come to, to pass and what was the, what was the most interesting part of that experience? Who, um, I, I guess I'll start with everything was interesting. Every day was just bonkers. It was my first time living overseas, living overseas. Mm. It was my first time being a teacher. It was my first time living alone. Uh, living in a foreign country uh, with a foreign language because they don't really, they didn't really speak English. I mean, it was like a lot of firsts and I was full in culture shock. 
which if you know much about culture shock, the first part is euphoria, which was awesome. And then eventually there's this thud and then you find equilibrium where you can learn to accept a society or even, I think that's probably just some other type of, um, it's probably an extrapolation of other types of theories that happen with your life all the time when you face something that's extremely different. Um, but everything was interesting. I loved it. Um, how I got there. I, in summers and spring breaks, I was Julie on the cruise ships, I think, which was like the youth activities director. It was the best job ever. I was working maximum like 22 hours a week and just hanging out with kids, doing like bingo and pool parties and making tie-dye shirts and um, traveling the world. And, you know, and that was interesting too, because we're talking about money. Like I was from Cleveland. I am from Cleveland, Ohio. We, you know, and we grew up in a family, which was in the 1980s. Um, you know, my father owned a restaurant and um, I never felt like we had a lot of money. We definitely had more money than I thought, but I always felt like we didn't have a lot. But then I went on cruise ships and it was the first time I ever had an espresso and even heard of an espresso because there was no Starbucks when we grew up. And sushi was something really weird that people in California ate. Never had salmon before. Salmon wasn't as common. in the. I mean, I don't remember salmon being everywhere in the 1980s. And so and duck um, and all this other stuff. And so there was this, there was this whole, like, for me in, in, you know, cruise ships try to create a sense of wealth. Mm -hmm. Uh, and for me, it was really interesting to be part of this for the first time. And I was just like, wow, like, where is, where has all this stuff been? Um, and, but there also got to a point where I was tired of visiting places. Mm -hmm. I'd go into uh, I mean, you name it, I've been there. That's not true. But I've been to like 35 different ports of call. But of them, like somebody somebody will ask me, like, uh, have you been to um, Greece? And I said, well, I've been there, but I haven't really experienced it. I spent a day or two here, a day or two there. And I really wanted to experience something. Um, so I, um, I quit the cruise ships, which was hard to do because they dangled the world cruise at me. Like I said, I'm quitting. And they said, well, we're going to offer you the world cruise, which was 90 days on sea. Um, and 90 days at sea, 45 port days, I believe. So that's pretty cool. But there's no kids on the ship. And I was like, well, what am I going to do on the ship? I'm a youth activities director. And I said, well, you know, we'll, we'll have you run adult activities. And that never really interests me. I mean, I was like 20 something and I didn't want to play shuffleboard and I really wanted to live somewhere. So I, I, I got a job in Egypt and I went, it was amazing. Yeah. I opened a school there. I opened a school with some other people. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And so how long, how long were you there before you came back? I was there for one year. While I was there, there was a woman um, selling books to our school because we were a brand new school and she was from Lebanon. My family's originally from Lebanon, like a hundred years ago. Mm. And I said, well, I want to go there. Um, and so I went and visited her. I applied. I got that job for two years. Um, I was, to my knowledge, the only American history teacher on September 11th living in Lebanon, but there may have been one or two others. Um, and that was a little scary. Um, but I, I, and I remember the, um, it was scary, but I also remember thinking, I feel safer here than the U S because if you remember in the U S there were some real scary times, like we didn't know if there was another thing happening or if they were putting something in subways or in envelopes. Um, but I remember talking to the ambassador, the U S ambassador in Lebanon. And I said, I've got a bag. It's packed underneath my bed. When, um, you're going to let me know when I should evacuate. And she said, she just looked me square in the eyes. And she said, 
if I let you know when to evacuate, you should have probably already left like two weeks ago. <laughs> right, right. And I use that story a lot with my clients when we're talking about markets and getting out when things are frothy and we can come back to that. But so I left after two years, that was three years in the Middle East. It was a lot for me. I'm a pretty empathetic guy and there's a lot of tension over there, particularly the final year. Uh, I knew war was coming to the region. I didn't want to be in a region where there was a war. I was lucky to live in Lebanon of relative peace for two years. Um, And and so I took a job in Brazil and I taught there for... um, four years. I did four years of teaching all history in American schools, uh, emphasis on public safety, human rights, economics, but history in general. Yeah. Well, that's, um, yeah, that, that experience I I can only imagine was, was really interesting. And now you have gone on to do so many other things. Um, I guess maybe for anyone who's unaware of your career, your, at least your more recent career and your work, or how you think about your work. Could you just talk a bit about your background and, and how you think about your work at this point? Yeah, well, right now I um, I run a, so we, we manage, let's see, let's start over. So right now I run an, uh, a registered investment, an RIA. And um, so we manage money for clients and we do it under the philosophy of conscious wealth or conscious wealth management. And, and, and the belief that the way that we manage money, the way that we interact with our clients, um, and with all of our stakeholders can cultivate consciousness, can cultivate abundance, cultivate purpose, um, help individuals create an impact and unify people. Transforming money, which can be something of fear or um, maybe a way to keep score into something that can really create fulfilling lives. And, and, and I truly believe that the way that we run our business and the way we work with our clients can um, facilitate that. Gotcha. And you, I think you touched on them there, but could, would you just um, go through what is the definition or how do you define conscious wealth and what are the, what are its component parts? You, you mentioned them, but you just go. Yeah. Ahead. So I, I published a book in October and it was just based on a lot of the experiences I had of working with some very successful clients who navigated this, um, who've navigated uh, the complexities of having financial assets. And there are quite a bit of complexities around it. And what I saw in, in, in best practices amongst them was that um, that they had a mindset. And conscious wealth is, like a, is a mindset around money that can help cultivate uh, abundance, purpose, impact, and unity. And so I broke it into four different levels, but these four levels coexist at all times. It's not a stepping stone or a ladder one to the other, um, but they're all levels of transformation, ways that you can, you know, if we think about money being energy, which it is, in its basic form, it's just a piece of paper, but you got that paper because somebody, probably yourself and many other people have put energy forth to have that. And so, what do you do with that energy? You know, and one thing you can do is just spend it on lifestyle. And the problem though, with spending it on lifestyle is that um, it's never enough. Yeah. It's never enough. Lifestyle is like the horizon and it just keeps on going and it keeps on going. And a lot of people have had that experience in life saying, well, when I make um, this milestone a year, then I'm going to be happy. And then they grow into that and they say, well, now I want to make this milestone. I want to make this milestone. And it keeps on going further out. And sometimes it's on their own. And sometimes it's their family has has been part of that. And so um, really the whole book was about figuring out how much is enough. 
I really like how much is enough and how can you come to peace with that answer? And if you know how much is enough, then what do you do with the rest? Hmm. And in society, I think we're talking about two different extreme answers. Either you hoard it or you give it all away. Well, those neither of those sound really attractive. Just stacking a bunch of money in your bank account might make you make might make you think you're going to feel better, but rarely we find that to be true. And just giving it all away, that's a pretty big step. And so what we did and what I did within this book was talk about all the different things you could do with it, create purpose, create impact in your lives, but more importantly, in the people around you, and then create unity. Uh, and money as a unifying factor is countercultural, particularly today, but I, I do believe that it, that that is its promise. Mm, man, I, that, uh, that resonates a lot with me and my experience as well. And um, before we go any further into the book, I'd love to hear how the book came about. So what, like, what were some of the beliefs that you had early in your days as a wealth manager or investment advisor that you, that have changed, you know, and, and, uh, and that had led you towards the conscious wealth book to begin with? Yeah. Oh man. I mean, originally I wanted to write the book. I think that, you know, if the, the most, the most truthful answer is I originally wrote the book because I thought it would be something really good to get my name out there and bring in clients. And, um, because that's what we were trained to do. Like if you work in a broker dealer, which I started in the broker dealer, it was like, just bring in clients, just bring in clients, just bring in clients. And so you get that kind of in your mindset. And so I was like, well, how could I do that? Well, I'll write a book. And that's why I started. And when that was the purpose of writing my book, it never got published. And then when it flipped to, oh, I have something really important to say throughout this process, I've learned a lot. And I've learned a lot just through my own transformation and work, but listening to others, particularly my clients, then um, it got published and like pretty quickly too, like a year and a half, it was out the door. Uh, we just took all these different parts, melded them together and put my current understanding around life or just bringing my present self to it. And it came to life really quickly. So that's how it came about. And then as soon as it got out in the world, which it is now, mm -hmm. it's really about the message. Like, how can I, how can I help as many people see that life really begins when we stop fearing about money? Now, that could be a really elitist thing to say. And I understand that because a lot of people really do have fears around money and those fears are real. So I'm not trying to say that that's not, um, that, that that's not a reality for many people in this country. Um, but what I'm also saying is there's a tremendous amount of, well, I don't I want to talk about other people. I'll talk about myself. There was a lot of time in my life when I feared money, when it was no longer necessary. And so I wrote that book for myself when I was going through that and anyone else who might be going through that. Yeah, I agree with you that it's hard to build on fear. So when you start at that place, whatever level, I, I do think you're 100% right. It's very hard to build from that place. Have you? What's your experience been? Let, let's just take anyone listening or watching this who might have had, might currently have an experience with a financial advisor or an investment advisor, or might have had experiences with them. I mean, the things that you're saying here are not what you typically hear when you go into the office of a wealth manager. So sure. what do you think, what do you think contributes to that? Why is it, you know, is in fact the industry, uh, does, does the industry need some evolution or what is it about the industry that reinforces that fear? Yeah, no, sir. And I, I'm, I'm going to go back to your statement, which I thought was really good. And it impacted me, which is it's hard to build on fear. And when I was going to the industry, when I was going through the training, 
we had, you know, this, this, this man had really great charisma and he was always training us on stuff. And one of the things he would say is you need to meet someone at a cocktail party and you need to say, what is your, what keeps you up at night? That was it. Like, that was the one liner, like what keeps you up at night? Hmm. And I like, that's a terrible way to start a conversation. That is it. And so like, why would I base my business proposition on like, I'm going to help you sleep better. Although I think there's some truth to that, like just drumming up the fears. And so it is, look, the financial services industry has continued to create more responsibilities to financial advisors, wealth managers, CFPs, whatever you call them. They've thrown so much on us. If you go back to the 1970s, all we did, we, I wasn't part of the business at that time, but all they did was drop tickets. And you would just, you know, and, and that word is still around today. Yeah, I dropped a ticket or something like that. We don't like we're everything on discretion, but it was just you just sold stuff and that there was no real information out there. We were the keepers of the keys. When you have Hutton's, everybody listens. And yeah, so this yeah. idea like we had all this information and slowly we've that information has been completely democratized. Mm-hmm. Everybody has it. Now, it's so much that not everybody can digest it, but it's out. A lot of the information is out there. And now we're asked to be estate planners and we're asked to do, um, I mean, pet wills, right? <laughs> like a, a, a will for your dog. We're looking at 529s. And so all this other stuff got added. And um, it's a lot. It's a lot to handle. And the one thing, thing that as, as this information has gotten taken away from us is that the industry has increasingly said, well, the way that we're going to keep them is show that we're smarter than them. Mm-hmm. We're going to, and how do you make somebody feel that you're smarter than them? Well, obviously it's not necessary. It's not true. I can't be smarter than everyone. I can be more disciplined. I can run a better process, but trying to prove that I have a better mousetrap is near impossible. And the only way it's possible is if I make people feel that they're afraid. And so if you look at the marketing out there for very large institutions who are hoping to hold on to more clients, it's based on fear. Now, the other option is to say, well, I can't be smarter than anyone. As I said, I can run a better practice. I can be more disciplined. I can help very complex situations. I can get them information that they don't have. But if I can't be smarter than them, then I'm just going to have to care, like really care. Like I'm going to have to love my clients and I'm going to have to show that I love them through my actions and go to war for them in any way that I can, or go to battle for them, which is the word battle, not war. Well, it seems that, I mean, for many people, just making them afraid would be easier than that. Yeah. I I think um, the question of what keeps you up at night. I mean, the thing about that question is that it presupposes that (laughs) everything having to do with money is like terrifying and you know that what a what an unfortunate way to yeah. you know to think about the the construct and the relationship with money because as you said it isn't it is energy it's a resource that we can yeah. use to do one and it presupposes things. that they're up at night right <laughs> which I never even thought of yeah right yeah or yeah. that they should be now if if they weren't <laughs> yeah. before right show me but, your portfolio and I'll tell you why you should be up at night yeah yeah, yeah. I mean it's it's so true because you know when I think about like a lot of the retirement conversations that happen behind closed doors, it's let's make sure you don't run out, right? Mm-hmm. Or that you, to your point, you have enough. And the whole conversation is about like making sure that we kind of weasel away enough just to make sure it lasts. And, yeah. um, but, it, but you know what? This actually is a makes me think of the first tenant in your book. So maybe mm-hmm. we could talk about that a little bit, yeah. which, I, which I love. Could you talk a little bit about the idea of abundance and um, 
you really do an incredible job of conveying the point of scarcity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how did, how did you think about scarcity and how did it lead you to abundance? Yes. To the first level that we talk about, and, and, and I say these things aren't hierarchical, but this is really the hierarchical part of it. You've got to get to this point if you want to enter into this mindset of conscious wealth. Yeah. And that's that more often than not, you feel like you have enough, right? Because everybody always wants to know, like, how much is enough? Do I have enough money? And having enough doesn't mean, oh, now I have enough. I never have to work again. I can go um, buy a sailboat and sail around the world or something like that, some version of that dream. What it does mean is right now, I know that I have enough to meet my goals and that I will have enough or I will find a way enough and that I will not be in destitute, right? And it's this confidence. It's, it's even more than a confidence. It's a knowing. And we talk, and in the book, I talk about how you kind of look, how you get there. And one of the ways that you get there is examining your beliefs around money or what we call money memories. Mm-hmm. Many of us have scarce money memories, and that would be completely reasonable. Um, we were all raised by parents who wanted to um, create a responsibility within us. Um, and I mean, I, th- I mean, like I remember all the time, like turn off the lights. Do you think money grows on trees? You know, like, uh, yeah. and these are these are these are things that um, you know that parents are doing their best, and, and but these are things that we might hold on to forever. The money memory stories I've heard from people are phenomenal. When I ask them, I'm going to ask you. Do you mind if I ask you a question? Sure. All right. What was your earliest memory about money? I remember that my father used to have a coin set, a bunch of coin sets under his bed. Yeah. And so he was like saving them and they were old, like silver, pure silver quarters and things like that. Yeah. Um, I remember that, uh, you know, eventually I, I remember having to beg a lot and really work towards the point where I could get an allowance of any kind. Yeah. <laughs> and, when I, and when I finally did, I was, I was really excited. Um, yeah. And then I do remember uh, both of my parents. I remember going to different parents depending on what the circumstances were because they both had different. They, they were. I was more likely to get an answer I I wanted out of one versus the other depending on the the circumstance because I guess because maybe of their their money beliefs. But sure, sure. And and then and the next step, which we won't do on live podcast or in discussion, but then, and thanks for sharing that. Like I put you on the spot and thanks. And I love that. And I, I would, I, I would love for you to think more about like, what does that mean? And how do I either reflect keeping really valuable things under my bed? Do I still do that today? Or if I moved to the other end of the spectrum and fought against what I saw and so, that, and that's what we do within the book is look at, the, I give examples of my money memories, some of the things that I grew up with. Um, and what really were they? Started to, yeah. You, you touched on it earlier, you, I, but I'd love to hear like, what, what, what was your catalyst? So this is controversial within my family <laughs> for two reasons. One, because, um, as a kid, we were never poor. We always ate, we always had a roof over our head, but I, but what, what I, what I write in the book is I felt poor. I felt like we never had enough money. I felt like we were one step away from going bankrupt. And I didn't really know what happened after then, but I didn't really like the sound of that. So I'm a saver and I'm really intentional about what I buy. And I'm to this day still a minimalist. Um, and I, I definitely live below um, the level that I spend less money than I can, potentially could. 
Yeah. Um, but my big thing that broke into abundance was, uh, I mean, I, so my story with money is I grew up thinking we didn't have any, and I wanted a ton of it. Then I went to college and I was like, I'm going to be an accountant because I, I'm going to have a ton of it. I hated business school. And I decided for one reason or for a couple of reasons, I said, all right, now I'm going to go be a teacher. I'm not going to have money, but I'm going to be a public servant and I'm going to be better than that. I'm going to, I'm going to live kind of above money. I'm going to be, you know, like, actually, I guess that would be, yeah, I'd be above it. I'm going to be above it. I'm going to live on a higher standard of money. I don't need it. I'm going to be this humble teacher. Uh, and then reality set in and I was like, oh man, I'm 33, the age of Christ, and I don't have any money. And like, it's been a great run, but I do want a career. And then I decided I didn't have any, and I was going to get a ton of it again. And, and that was my goal, right? Like I want to make as much as possible. So I went into financial services. I went into one of the really big firms and they love people like me. The, you know, the, the expression is a PhD. I was poor, hungry, and driven or right. poor, hungry, and dumb. And right. I wanted a lot of it. So like, I was just working hard all the time. It was where, you know, crazy time, like crazy hours, you know, the 12, sometimes 14 hour days worked on Saturdays, sometimes on Sundays, not too often. And um, like I made it like in a sense, like if anyone who's been through the broker dealers or has been through financial services, it's about a 90 something percent failure rate. It's, it's, it's not really high. Uh, and I got through the system. I got the nice office, which again, if you have a door, you're a king. Like that's it. I started out on a desk of 12 people. So I would come in at five in the morning so I could get all my work done before they did. Um, and so my nickname was, they would call me night shift because I would just come in so early and I would blow up all the partners emails just so they knew I was working at five. And I was, I, I like to poke the bear. Yeah. Um, but I got to a point where I made it a sense of, I had a door, I had a very sustainable business. I was proud of the way I built it. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't compromise my ethics in any way. I comp, but, but what ended up happening was I compromised myself. Uh, um, so I had the financial success, I created wealth, but I destroyed something. And I really destroyed my sense of joy, my sense of happiness and my mm. physical health. I was physically ill. Um, I went to the dentist and they, um, and they said, look, you're going to need to get a biopsy because we see some irregularities within your mouth. Um, they said, and you're going to have to have somebody take you, pick you up and take wait in the waiting room and drive you home because you're going to be under anesthesia. And, um, you know, you would think the average person would say, oh man, I might have cancer. And my thought was, oh man, I don't have anyone to take me to the doctor's office. Like it's a huge thud. Yeah. I don't have anyone to take me to the doctor's office because I've just spent the last couple of years of my life trying to get a door. At the expense of the relationships that you would have otherwise nurtured. Right. Precisely. My girlfriend broke up with me. She said, you're never around. She was right. My family was in a different state and all I did was work. So, I mean, like how many real friends can you have? Right. So when I say wealth, the creation of wealth destroys something, that's very much what I'm talking about. And that can sometimes can be a controversial negative statement, but nothing is created without something being destroyed. And in my case, I destroyed my health and my, and my social circle. And from there, I went back to the office. Don't recommend stitches in your mouth. It hurts. Um, and I had to be, you know, and, and I had to be quiet. I had to be quiet. I couldn't talk. So all I did was sit around the office and listen. And at the time I was like, this is like a silent meditation. Like 
I'm just walking around the office listening and I really didn't like what I saw. Wow. And it became pretty abundant to me or pretty clear to me, abundantly clear to me that I was, I was living in a working in a place that wasn't aligned with my values. And it did not match my previous career, which was working in human rights, public safety, education. And I had, you know, and so the question is, how much is enough? And that's a really hard question for most people to answer. But what's very easy to tell in a moment like that was, I have too much. Whatever enough is, I've got too much of it. And I've got too much of that and not enough of the right stuff. And that's where I really began to shift. Luckily, I didn't have cancer. And ironically, it was some irregularities in my mouth because of an immune, like immunocompromise, which is no surprise because all I was doing was working. You know, like if you work in those kind of hours, your immune system shut down. Yeah. Uh, and that's a, that's again, a really hard lesson to learn. And, and, and the pendulum swung too far. And that's, that was kind of the beginning of my journey to creating something what, that I find very meaningful now, which is our type of work that we're doing. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank Thanks. you so much for sharing that. Um, if, if, if someone's listening right now and they aren't exactly sure uh, what their relationship with money is at this point. Like they, they might have mixed feelings about it. Um, I think what I'm hearing you suggest, which I've certainly had this experience myself is that this scarcity really can drive behaviors like what the story you just described. And, and it can be, uh, compromising for areas that are really important. How would you suggest someone think about whether or not they have a heightened level of scarcity Mm -hmm. And like, what, what, what could they do to explore that? And then what steps could they start to take? What are like the first couple of steps they might take to, to try to address it? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the first thing is looking at your actual money memories and, and you can write them down. And that's what we do in this workshop that I do. We write down like five to seven money memories. One of mine, um, <laughs> the one that comes to mind is, um, when the ice cream man came around, I went on my dad's ashtray, which had coins in it because he would empty coins out when he came home every day. I would just go buy ice cream. And my, all my siblings were like, how do you always have money? And I was like, well, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I answered it. I'm like, I'll have a snow cone, please. <laughs> um, so you look at these early money memories and you ask yourself, well, is on a scale right? Of scarcity and abundance, scarcity being I have enough or I will have enough. Um, sorry, abundance being that, scarcity being I don't have enough or I won't have enough. Where does this memory sit? Now, like this memory for me, stealing to buy ice cream would be way on the scarcity side of the spectrum. And But then you pull all of yours, like as many as you can and think of like, oh, the dot-com bubble or the first time I started investing, the first time I got a raise. And when you look at all of these different types of memories, you look at like, like where do I sit on the scale of this thing? Like, I think that's the first thing I would do. Um, and then I look at like the most scarce moment I have and the most abundant moment I have, like individually. And I like, I kind of put myself in that place and I try to keep modern day stuff. I don't want to go back to when I was six years old or eight years old, but I'll look like a modern day moment where I have a, a level of scarcity and I'll put myself in that place. And I'll be like, what do I feel like? Not like I, and, and, and there's an old, there's an expression. Oh, I feel like, um, I feel, I feel like I won't have enough. Anytime you say, I feel like, it's not really how you feel. You're right in your mind. So it's like, what do I feel? And when I feel mm. scarcity, 
I have a burning sensation in my stomach. That's me. Everyone's going to have, it's going to show up somewhere differently. If I really feel scarcity, and if you work in these markets, you will feel this, you might get lightheaded. So you look at what do I actually feel like? And then you take an abundant moment. Maybe it's somebody graduating, you know, or you graduating, or you getting your promotion. Like, what did I feel like? And now that you've attached some type of meaning to that feeling of abundance and scarcity, you can check in with yourself on a day-to-day basis and be like, where am I on the scale? And I want to mention that scarcity is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It's everything has been created from scarcity, Mm -hmm. right? If you have a complete set of abundance your whole life, you might not create that much. Mm -hmm. And you probably won't create as much as if there was some scarcity. Scarcity is the fire to this and fire is needed. But the problem is that fire isn't always needed. And there's sometimes in your life where you have too much scarcity. So I don't want people, I, I get a lot of times in my workshop saying, well, shouldn't I just always be abundant? I say, no, not necessarily. And you like, I'll ask them if they have kids, do you want your kids to always feel abundant? No, I want some fire in their belt. Okay. So how does that work? So getting that balance and knowing how you feel those are really important. Mm, Man, I I love that you are describing attaching a feeling to that concept because that's the, I mean, the truth of it is like, you know, how many people out there in the world right now are watching what's happening with the economy and the news about the economy and the numbers about the economy. And they're dealing with those feelings one way or the other, but perhaps a little more attention to what the feelings are and what you know, what uh, reactions they're associated with, whether they are tied to scarcity and what decisions they might be attempting to make from, from either of those positions is like hugely important. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the tangent I was just about to go on. So I'll come back to that, which is as financial advisors. And I know a lot of advisors and investment advisors listen to the show is that you're not doing your job if you're not scared once in a while. And that is the challenging part of our job is knowing that I have these types of feelings. I have these types of fears and I still have to work with them and work with our clients who are having those same fears and not always represent those or bring that to them and have an abundant mindset and the balance between the emotional intelligence needed to work with clients and setting aside the emotions while you're managing money is really, I think what makes this job difficult you know, or, or the challenging. And it's also what we're, we are rewarded for. So for anyone that's listening to this, would you suggest that there's like on the scale of scarcity on one side, abundance on the other, is there kind of a position that is optimal for approaching, you know, wealth creation and investment decision-making the goal, thanks to a lot of my mentors for teaching me this, the goal is to have range. The goal is to be able to bring in scarcity when you need it and bring in abundance when you need it. Hmm. Just like I was saying when we're in my day-to-day work, knowing when I need to have an abundant mindset and when I need to have a scarcity moment. And that's going to change from moment to moment, day-to-day and phase-to-phase in my life. I needed a scarcity mindset when I started in this business because as I said, it's a somewhere less than 10% success ratio, but I held on to that for too long. And so the goal is to have enough range and know when to call in the cavalry for each side and, 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 and know what you're and to find more awareness around what you're experiencing with scarcity and abundance. Does that help? 
It does. Yeah, yeah it yeah. does. It definitely does. Yeah. Well, so let's go back to that. The question you posed earlier, which is if, if we can identify the, the money memories and get a better mm-hmm. sense of whether we are generally leaning scarce or abundant yeah. uh, as our core position, you mentioned, do I have enough or how much is enough? How yeah. did, what was your personal experience with that journey? How did you go through that, that questioning process and, and what was your discovery like? I mean, I still go through it where I can get more in that abundant space. There's one component that's financial. And I think um, if you're working with an advisor, you should ask your advisor what that number is. Um, and and, and um, that's great. Like everyone should do it, but that doesn't make people stop worrying. The other is, yeah, but it's, a, it's an important number to have. So we look at that number, how much you actually have, uh, plus um, how much you spend. And we look at kind of like um, how much you actually need. How much of that spending could you cut down in a moment's notice? It's kind of important. We look at that. Uh, and we look at our memories, like these money memories, and then we we divide it by um, our expectations. So I mentioned before that I didn't ever expect to have financial assets. I always wanted them, but I never expected them. So every once in a while, and I've sit, I, I hang out with my friends from Cleveland, and you know we go to a nice steakhouse and we have a great meal, and we just look at each other, and you go, "Do you ever think we'd be able to do this when we were kids?" No, I never thought. You know, so just practicing gratitude, like wow. Like, look where I'm at. And I try to do that every day. Um, and, and and so, you know, the hard thing about answering the question, how much is enough? Because everybody wants to know the question is, like, you really need to know how long you're going to live. And you you don't know. Right. You really don't. Of course you don't know. And so um, if I, it, it, it's one of those things of learning to live with the discomfort of not knowing uh, and being grateful for what you have and just trusting in your resilience, I would say. Yeah. That, um, if I lost everything, I'd still be okay. Right. Finding safety within, uh, as opposed to without. And that's easy to say like, Oh, I'm going to find safety within because I have all this money to protect me, but it's also good to practice that. There's many opportunities to practice safety from within and not from external forces. Interesting. That's yeah. You, you know, you, I know this, there's a big section in the book about this. So for, for anyone listening uh, or watching that it's, it's uh there's a lot of good content there that that can help walk you through this, but I think I heard you mention an equation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is the equation? So the equation I call is the enough equation, which is uh, enough equals my current financial assets and their growth, which is what any financial advisor can tell you um, minus how much I spend and will spend, um, and plus my confidence to face adversity in the future, divided by my money. And divided by my money memories? Yep. Yep. And all of those together, it's not a number, but it is a knowing. And if you go through all of that, I do believe you'll be on a higher ground than a simple financial plan, and you'll be on a higher ground than a gut, than a gut feeling. You know, it'll be it'll be a combination of both. And do you find when people go through this process that the payoff, what, what is the payoff? It sounds like there's a kind of a psychological payoff, but what's, um, what's the main benefit would you say that, that comes from going through this exercise? Here's the crazy thing about getting to a point where you have enough is I really think it's not like you don't make money anymore. And in fact, you're going to make more which only works if you do it. <laughs> like it's a weird it's a weird twist. How do I explain this? Like 
it's like, um, if you get to a point where you don't feel like you need more money, you will attract people who want to work with you. And there's no real way to explain it. And you can't, you can only get there by doing it for good intentions, not for, um, to, to, because you can't get there by meaning to make more money. Does that make sense? So one of the big payoffs is you will have by embracing abundance, you will have more abundance. Hmm. That's probably the best way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I mean, even, yeah, that, that, that definitely uh, resonates. And also I, I think about investors that make decisions from fear and those decisions are usually suboptimal or oftentimes suboptimal at the, at the very least. And um, so I do think that, you know, a lot, many great investors have an optimism that the markets are going to continue over the long term to go up and those sorts of things. And they're looking for businesses and sectors and innovations and those kinds of things that, that are opportunities rather than just trying to kind of hoard and protect all the time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And if you're looking at the markets to make money, it puts a lot of pressure on something that's completely out of control. Where if you're looking at the markets to preserve and grow at a reasonable rate, it takes a lot of pressure off. And it gives you a lot more opportunity and space within to go out there and make it. Right. And because and, I, th- I, th- I truly believe that when I work with someone, they're better at making it than I am. They've got the ideas. They've got the business skills, whatever it is. Um, and I just can't imagine counting on the markets to um, to be my source of income my whole life. It, it, it's a tough gig. It's something completely out of control, and it's not even a value add. Right, it's like a like no full way. like yeah, like full time trading versus There's a value add, yeah. <clears throat> There's no value add. There's nobody in society is benefiting from, from you doing that. And so that's not to say it's a bad thing to do, but it is hard, like, it's hard to say, well, I'm always going to be needed. <laughs> you might not. Right. Yeah. Right. As yeah. your sole source of income, your entire life. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot. That's a lot of pressure. There was another distinction that you made in the book that I really appreciated. And I hadn't really thought about the difference here before before reading the, what you wrote about it, which is the difference between enhancement and enrichment. And yeah. um, could you just describe how you think about those those two concepts and, and their differences? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so that and, and that's part of the second level of conscious wealth that we talk about, which is purpose. And we try to, you know, purpose is such a big word and everybody's really wrapped up about purpose. And so in the book, we boil it down. I boil it down very simply to um, purpose is, is the sense of feeling alive. Uh, the per, you know, I use the Thomas Merton quote, the tree gives glory to God by being a tree. Mm-hmm. And the, the, I'll repeat that the tree gives glory to God by being a tree, which is this idea that mm-hmm. my purpose in life is not to be anyone else or to do anything. We're human beings. We're not human doings. And I'm just supposed to be me. And that how I can, what I do in life to bring out the highest form of who I am, the highest expression of who I am. Uh, And that's my purpose. It doesn't have to be to build like an investment firm or to write a book or any of this. It's just to be myself. And then if that's the case, if you accept that to be as purpose, it takes a lot of pressure off. And then you can start looking at your spending Mm. and say, when I spend money, 
does that help me be a better Brandon? You know, am I giving glory to God by being a better tree or however you want to define that? Mm. And, and it's, sometimes it's a black and white answer. So um, I'm sure we could think of example. Well, I could think, let's think of some things I spend money on. I sail um, and, and I have a boat here in Miami, a really small, fun boat. I sail out of the U.S. Sailing Club, which is a really cool place. Mm. And um, it's, you know, it's still a little scary for me out there. Um, because I've only been out there like two or three times. There's big yachts that don't see my 14 foot boat and I got to get out of their way and they've got waves that could, you know, crush me. And then there's currents. But when I'm out there, I feel alive. I don't have my phone on me. I don't think about work. I am just out there sailing and it is amazing. And, um, and then afterwards, um, sometimes there's some guys around and we'll just be talking or making jokes and I starting to create a community starting to get on other people's boats. So that to me is money. That's bringing out my truest sense. And so I spoke of uh, my truest essence and I spoke of earlier how wealth creation can destroy something. Right. And what's nice is that about that situation is you can rebuild that something um, and you can, you have the assets to do that. You can use money in my case to buy a boat. It's a fun boat that, um, and, and pay for a slip fee. Um, my slip fee here is super affordable, but it's still a fee, but using that money to <laughs> reconnect with myself, reconnect with my purpose is an example of transforming money into purpose. So like, it seems kind of esoteric, like transforming money. Like, what is that? How do you transform energy? I'm using money that was spent, was earned to reconnect with myself. And when I go to the office the next day, I'm a nicer person. When I go home, I'm a nicer person. Uh, I'm more kind, generous, and loving. And so that's an example of an enrichment. Enrichment. Okay. Uh, I could also, and have done this, um, can go to a Michelin star restaurant. And the meal is going to cost me per, for me, just me on my side of the table, anywhere from like 400 to $600 to eat there. Wow. And I'm going to be sitting down and hearing about how the smoke was made from leaves from the chef's backyard to make, to remind me of autumn. And I respect all that, but that is not an, that is, that is an enhancement for me. It's kind of cool. makes my life a little bit easier but it, it does not make me feel more alive. Sitting down for four hours and going through a 12 course meal is not, doesn't really enrich me. So figuring out maybe, and maybe it does you, maybe you're a foodie, like, but the, the point is to look at how you're spending money and the way that you spend it is a form of transformation. You're taking it into an experience. And so how, how are you transforming it and how is it bringing out your truest sense or your purpose? I love it. Yeah. So, so all under the context of purpose, and I, you, when I when you were talking, I was thinking about all the things that I might spend money on and where they would fall under enhancement or enrichment. And that's, uh, yeah, that is such a great way to think about the value of a purchase or an investment uh, of of resources that you're about to make. I, I love that. Um, well, so we ha- I know we're we have a couple more minutes here. So we've talked about abundance. We've talked about purpose. And uh, by the way, there's a ton in those two sections that we have not covered that's in the book that's really amazing. Um, but the other two sections, could you just touch on what those are, the other two sections are and, and um, give kind of an overarching 
framework? Yeah, sure. So the first two sections, the first two uh, levels uh, are punctuated by, you know, I have enough. Purpose is I am enough. I, I'm enough of a person. I can spend on myself. It's okay to give to myself. Um, but when you get beyond that into the higher levels of conscious wealth, which uh, are impact and unity, you start to really call into question. So they're no, they're no longer statements, they're questions. So instead of I have enough is, um, do I have anything at all? right? Like we know we can't take money with us. And so if we can't take it with us, is it really ours in our lifetime? Or are we merely custodians? And if I'm a custodian, what is my responsibility? And how am I to, how am I to use this to impact the lives of other people so that they can cultivate abundance and purpose? And so that, that would be level three. And again, these are all simultaneously happening. And level four is not, uh, I am enough, but am I Am I at all? Am I separate from anyone else? Can I be successful if other people aren't successful? Can I, can I, um, if I'm going, and this can come into questions around inheritance too. Like, um, what do I do with my money? How much is enough for my kids? And if I am no separate than other human beings, then it doesn't make sense for me to give my entire inheritance to my kids, or should I give them to other people's kids? Um, in other words, strangers or nonprofits. And uh, so how can I use this? So in, in actually, actually practicing that uh, of like, it's hard to like, if you look at the esoteric, like if you just think esoterically, like, yeah, we're all connected. Okay, great. What do I do with that? Like, how, how, what does that mean? How do I create unity? Well, like, but I don't know. It's hard to, I, you know, ask a guru, but if it's me, I would say, go ahead and give start giving money away. Like not just giving it on the street, although you can, but like taking money and and coming up with a charitable plan and supporting other people. Because there's one side of the spectrum that says, oh, this world is tough. I want to make sure everything's good for my kids. And the other is saying, hey, this world is tough. And I want to make sure the world is better for my kids. And, And during your lifetime, supporting both of those people, you know, and don't know. And just the act of doing that will unite to other people. Man, when I read this section of the book, it really struck me for a few reasons. Number one, you know, it seems to me like, you know, I have, I have kids, I have young kids. And if, if I'm going to squirrel away everything I have and then give it to them at some level, it, it is kind of a scarcity mentality around like, it has to stay in my family. And I, you know, I have to make sure they're okay as though they can't, you know, function on their own and create on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I think you're really onto something there because when I've given away money to specific charities that I appreciate during hard years, and it almost feels better and more right when it's harder to do. Yep. And I've also started recently to think about, you know, what are the, what are the causes that I'm giving to? And are they the most impactful when you actually break it down? Like, you know, is giving to the Red Cross making the same impact as it is to another charity that functions a different way or that serves a different purpose? And um, these are really wonderful and profound questions to be asking. So I, I, um, I really appreciate that you that you emphasize that in the in the book. Yeah, Thank thanks. Thanks for sharing your experience too. Um, it, yeah, I think twenty twenty giving during twenty twenty was um, so necessary. And, and for me, it was like, well, 
and, and we didn't know how 2020 was going to end up, like how we were going to finish the year. But I, I just knew, even though everything's down and things are crazy, I have a house and I can still work from home. Right. And, and so it felt like this was this was the time I needed to give to food insecurity. Yeah. And um, and then deciding, yeah, all of these questions that we work with our clients on and allow them as families to have discussions around it. Like, what is our strategy? Are we going to give to big organizations, small organizations? How is it aligned to our values and kind of tracking that in the same way? Um, they've, you know, tracking that in the same way that our investments are, is could be really valuable for a family. Totally. For sure. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And, and, you know, and giving when times are tough, it, it is a, uh, really strong and powerful reminder that there is enough to do that. And that Absolutely. there's someone else that needs it more than I do, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Abundance, uh, attracts abundance. Absolutely. And begets abundance. Absolutely. Well, Brandon, this, uh, I could, I could ask you questions about your thinking and this concept <laughs> for, so for hours. Um, but this has really been, really been wonderful. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for, you know, joining me here on the conversation. Um, where can people that are listening find out more about you and the book and, and follow your work or, or learn more about what you do? Yeah, sure. So my website's Brandon Hatton, H-A-T-T-O-N.com. Uh, and then our, um, that's with the book and a lot of the tools that we have in the book. And then our business site is hatteninvestments.com. So yeah, those are our two sites. And uh, if, if uh, any of your listeners read the book and have any questions or thoughts or share, I'd love to hear from them. The emails or whatever would be welcome. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure. And, uh, and if anybody has interest, um, we'll link to everything you just described in the show notes. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Before you go, if you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. And if you enjoyed the conversation or any other, please leave a review. It's the single best way you can support the podcast. And I would be so incredibly grateful for your support. So thank you so much. I hope this was a good one. And until next time, this has been Rich Life Lab.